You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Well, here we are again. Uh, If you had told me in April that we would again meet on Zoom in November, I think I would have been really discouraged. And while this is discouraging, I am not discouraged. Uh, We not only have good reason to hope in the rollout of quality vaccines in the next few months and then the months following that those hopefully begin to take effect, but we even have a better reason to hope in our ever-present God to love and sustain us. And as a matter of fact, uh, Advent starts next Sunday, the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day. And while we often center our sermon series around the four traditional Advent themes of hope, love, joy, and peace, this year, we are just going to consider hope. Hope for four weeks in a row. Hopefully, even more fixing ourselves uh, to our sure and steady anchor, Christ the Lord, in both his first coming, but then even in growing hope for his second coming. But we're not there yet. And thankfully, we have one more Sunday in 2020 to consider the book of Acts. Uh, here is a sermon about one of the greatest sermons in the whole Bible. My, my sermon uh, might be good. Uh, it's not going to be great. So lower your expectations. But Stephen, man, like this guy produces and provides something incredible here in Acts 6 and 7. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church. Uh, again, like Clint said, we'd love to connect with you. If this is your first time joining us through Zoom, what a weird time to try to connect to a church. So we'd love to try to uh, ease that transition as much as possible as we can, if we can. So we'd love to connect with you. Uh, but we have been working our way through the book of Acts. And because we're going to cover all of uh, chapter 6, verse 7, all the way through chapter 8, verse 3, I asked Eric to just read the tail end of that. So hopefully you've already read the, our whole text for tonight uh, a few times earlier in this week. But if not, I'm going to fill in the context and perhaps fill in some of the blanks as we go. What we have here, though, is another courtroom scene. And I say another courtroom scene because we've already had several courtroom scenes throughout the book of Acts. We saw Peter and John brought before the Sanhedrin, the the religious council in Acts 4, and then all of the apostles again in Acts 5. We might even say that the scene of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 is another courtroom scene. Only while the apostles in Acts 4 and 5 are vindicated, they are ultimately by God found not guilty. In Acts 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira found guilty and condemned. This scene with Stephen, though, feels almost like just a classic movie courtroom drama. It's got all of the unexpected twists and turns, the drama, the heartbreak, There's probably like a swelling soundtrack from time to time throughout the scene. Mostly, though, the soundtrack is probably just like a single snare drum. Uh, It's just intense as Stephen is just talking and talking and talking and the tension mounts. Most of all, though, this chapter is a major transition into the rest of the book of Acts. And it's a great place, actually, for us to catch our breath during Advent. So tonight, we're going to think through this passage in three courtroom moments or three courtroom movements. That of the accusation the witness, and the verdict. We're going to think through this three movements, the accusation, the witness, and the verdict. So first of all, in the accusation, 
Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 6, we read that Stephen, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, uh, maybe go grab one. Your video is off. We won't know that you left the the screen for just a second to grab a video or grab a Bible, or perhaps you might have one uh, digitally available as well, because we're going to be reading through some parts that Eric didn't read. So uh, verse 8, chapter 6, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So the preaching and the reasoning has now moved out from just the temple proper in the middle of the city and out into the synagogues. But then verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen, that is. They then secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this is this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? So these are serious charges that are brought against Stephen. They accuse him of saying that Jesus will destroy the temple that he wants to change the customs of Moses. And I just think about this. If you're in Stephen's shoes and the high priest just said, are these things so? Like, how would you have answered? What would you have said? What would have been your line of thinking, your line of defense? I think my first impulse would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like there seems to be a serious misunderstanding here. You are totally mischaracterizing what I've been saying all along. Yeah, Jesus has brought a very new way of understanding and relating to both the temple and the law. But come on, guys. Like, that's not what I've said. Objection, your honor. Or even just flat out saying not guilty. I never said any of that. But then in being both the defendant receiving the accusation and being on trial, Stephen then also becomes the witness. He becomes his only witness. And sitting in the metaphorical witness stand, Uh, He then stands up and he just starts talking. So now, secondly, let's consider his speech. He doesn't do what perhaps you and I would do and just start defending ourselves. We'd assume that he's going to begin defending himself, but then we're going to see something completely unexpected happen. Now, secondly, the witness. He says in chapter 7, verse 2, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. And then Stephen takes his accusers on a tour throughout the entire story of the Old Testament people of God. We'll we'll circle back around to his main points and why he brings up specific people, but Stephen is going to specifically highlight pretty much the high points of the whole Old Testament story. Uh, He'll highlight figures and characters like Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, and the prophets. It's a theological uh, just exploration of what's going on throughout the whole Old Testament. But before we get to the content of his sermon, I want to point out two things. First, like I said, This is one of the greatest sermons in the whole Bible. It's a theological masterpiece. Stephen has unbelievably rich, an unbelievably rich and theological mind. He obviously has incredible public speaking skills. He is ready to preach. So it's pretty incredible that last week we saw in chapter six that the apostles didn't just immediately grab him and put him in front of huge crowds to start preaching the name of Christ. But instead, They commissioned him to serve bread to the widows. 
I'm reminded of a story of a pastor at a member meeting of a really large church. Uh, and he asked all of the men of this church who desired to preach, who desired to one day be a paid minister or even just a lay elder of the church to raise their hands. If you desire to be a minister or a servant or an elder of the church, raise your hand. And many dozens of hands went up. Then he asked the men with their hands up to keep their hands up if they were now presently regularly serving in the children's ministry of that church. Many, many, many hands went down. I'm I'm not sure that I would do something as public as that. Certainly we have different ways in our church that people are serving besides the children's ministry. But I immediately thought of this story uh, when Stephen stands up full of grace and power. Stephen, who is gifted and able to lead the church, a powerful preacher, was completely content, even if for a time, to serve the church, to serve the needs and the people of the church. Wherever God would have him, that's what he would do. Someday, yes, it would turn into a powerful preaching ministry, even if short-lived. But for most of the time that we see him highlighted, he is serving the needs of the church. But secondly, uh, I'm so often helped by Jen Wilkins' comments about Acts, and she points out that three times in this short s- section about Stephen, Stephen is described of as full of the Spirit. Now, typically, when you hear of someone being full of the Spirit or being a Spirit-filled person, what do you perhaps first think of? Tambourines? Uh, dancing? Music? This is not intended to be snarky at all. But at least in Stephen's life, being a spirit-filled person meant two things. One, that he joyfully served others. He was full of the spirit, and so that's what he did. He, he served others in the beginning of chapter 6. And second, we see him full of the spirit so that he actually understands and can communicate the Bible. He is able to make deep and rich theological connections through God's word that then translates to a life of boldness and conviction. The Holy Spirit in Acts 6 through 8, like every other place in the book of Acts, comes to form a people who love one another, who serve one another, and then the Holy Spirit comes to direct this people's worship to the risen and ascended Christ. And that's what Stephen's sermon does. The Spirit comes not to just give people experiences or even to like warm their emotions, but to serve one another and point their worship to Christ. And, when, and, and these Jewish leaders are actually really upset about this kind of preaching that not only Stephen, but the apostles have been doing so far. They are preaching that Jesus is the word of God, that he is God incarnate who has revealed himself to us, that he is the son of God come to fulfill and live obediently to the law like Israel never has. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He has come to suffer and die to bring full and final forgiveness of sin. He is the temple of God. The place of atonement where God and man meet. And Jesus is all of this, not just for Israel, but for the sins of the whole world. And so that's why these leaders are bringing the accusations that they do against Stephen. If Jesus is the temple, then what you're saying now that this temple over here, this monument of our history and our identity as a people is now obsolete. If Jesus has fulfilled the law, then what are you actually saying about the law of Moses? If Jesus has come for the world, then who the heck are we? We are God's people, Stephen. So shut up. They're angry, furious with him. 
So Stephen stands up and he says, brothers and fathers, hear me. And he starts right in with Abraham. Right off the bat, he says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Meaning, yo dudes, you know that like Abraham wasn't like some uh, secret Jew, some secret Hebrew guy living way out in the east. Uh, no, he was not one of us when God came to him. He was a Mesopotamian. We see in Genesis, he was of the Chaldeans. He was a Babylonian guy. Only then did Abraham come to the land of Canaan. But even then, Abraham, when he was in the land, lived in the land as a pilgrim, a sojourning traveler. He was never settled. Stephen's main point is that God initiated, God came to, God made a people out of nothing. The Jewish history and identity is important, but we, Stephen is saying, we Jews are an actual work of God. There's nothing inherently special about us. We were not of his people when God came to Abraham. But then after the, after the patriarch, Stephen says in verse 9, after Abraham, after Isaac and Jacob, Joseph's brothers were terrible to him. Yeah, maybe Joseph was a little cocky. Maybe he could have kept his dreams to himself. But by all objective measures, Joseph was righteous while his brothers were almost entirely unrighteous. The brothers, they stay in the land of Israel, but they sell Joseph into Egypt. They send him out of the land. But looky there, God was with Joseph in Egypt. Well, it appears that God had left his unrighteous brothers to starve in Canaan, to starve in the land. Unknowingly, the brothers then come to their now kind of like their, the vice president of all Egypt, their brother Joseph, and they beg for his help, which he then generously gives. The people then remain in Egypt. They grow in number. They become enslaved. But God has not forgotten his people, even though they aren't in the, in the land of Canaan. It's not being in the land that makes them special. In fact, God raises up a deliverer to lead the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Only this baby, this kid, this young man doesn't grow up in wisdom studying under Jewish rabbis. He's not in synagogue every day, but in verse 22, Stephen says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. But eventually Moses grows to know his enslaved people. He desires to defend and protect them. So in verse 24, Stephen says, and seeing one of them, one of his countrymen being wronged, Moses defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. They, his countrymen, those who are enslaved, and he, he wants to speak to and defend and bring the word of God to and bring salvation to, they are not only not willing to hear Moses' words, not willing to receive the salvation of God, but they get angry about it when it comes. They ask, who made you a ruler and judge over us? And so, so while Moses is afraid of the Egyptians, it's ultimately his own people that drive Moses away from them. Moses, like the most, perhaps the most important uh, prophet and person in the history of Israel the people of Israel hate him. They can't stand it when he speaks to them. But it's away from, it's being away from the people. It's being out in the wilderness, being in the middle of nowhere where Moses actually meets God. It's in the middle of nowhere that God tells him that he is standing on holy ground, that wherever God is becomes his place. Whomever God speaks to and draws become his people. And then Stephen says in verse 35, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man, 
God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. And then skipping down to verse 39, But our fathers refused to obey him, thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. So they reject the right worship of God. They make a golden calf to worship instead. And then, just like completely off the cuff, remember, Stephen probably hasn't even prepared. He, he has no sermon notes in front of him. Stephen quotes the later prophet Amos, that just like this wilderness generation, worshiping at the foot of an idol of a golden calf, later generations would do the same thing. And God would, just like now, then later in, the, in later generations, he would send Israel into exile away from his presence again. And the point in Stephen's, and perhaps at this point in sermons, Stephen's sermon, uh, the high priest, the council, they are getting perhaps a little fidgety in their seats. Uh, maybe they're loosening their collars a bit. Maybe their blood pressure is elevated because they can probably see what Stephen is doing here. He's flipping the tables on them, but he's not done yet. In verse 44, he goes back to the time of Moses. He says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it, the tabernacle, with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the day, days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. And then he quotes from Psalm 11, Heaven is my throne, and in the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen isn't saying that David was wrong to want to build a more permanent place for God's presence in, the, in place of the tabernacle to build a temple, or that Solomon was wrong to build the temple. But Stephen, along with Jesus before him, and later Paul and Peter and other biblical, biblical authors, they're all saying that history has now been fulfilled. And those past things have served a purpose. Many folks have used a, a similar illustration, but in, our, in the life of our own church, on Wednesday morning, uh, Miss V, she got a ride to the airport. She then got on an airplane, I think, to, to Houston or Atlanta. And then maybe one of those airports, she had to hop on a shuttle to get to the other side of the airport, where then she got on another plane to get to Europe. And then uh, that plane then took her to a big city in North Africa where Mr. and Mrs. G picked her up in their car, and then they drove her back to Port City. Now, were any of those car rides, were any of the shuttle rides in the airports or plane flights themselves bad or wrong? No, they weren't bad. They all served a purpose in getting her to her destination. But none of those rides or flights were at all the point. Once she got to her new home, there's really no use now for the flights. They served a purpose. Now they're obsolete. They have been fulfilled. They've done their job. And so in quoting Psalm 11, or Stephen equally could have quoted Solomon himself from 1 Kings 8, when Solomon was dedicating the finished construction of the new temple, that God cannot be contained in a building. He never was intended to be contained in a building. Solomon, Stephen, and others are saying the presence of God can be anywhere and everywhere. The big word that we use for that is he is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. And for a time and purpose, like a plane flight, 
God used this temple as the place of his ordered worship and sacrifice, as the localized and focused hotspot of his presence. But that time has now completely come to an end in the person and in the work of Jesus. When the Lamb of God said, it is finished, and the curtain which was separating access to God was then torn from the top to the bottom, throwing wide the doorway to God, by folks now walking confidently in behind their great high priest himself. And when the father then commended and approved of this work by raising Jesus from the dead and giving him the kingdoms of heaven and earth at his ascension, when Jesus then poured out his spirit just a few weeks before Stephen's speech here at Pentecost, now once and for all confirming that the presence of God cannot and will not be contained in a building, but now will be housed and spread in, in and through a people that wherever God is becomes his place and whomever God speaks to and draws will become his people. Why in the world are you now trying to stop any of this? Stephen is seemingly and incredulously asking. Only he does know the answer. He does know the answer because he says, you are responding to the word of God and the salvation of God in the same way that humanity always has. He says in verse 51, you stiff necked people. You kind of like you, you, you ox or you cow who when put a, a, a yoke on your neck as you're pulling a cart, you are too stiff to feel and respond to correction, to direction. You will just walk in whichever way you want to. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, whom you or you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And in in like an American courtroom here at this point, Stephen would turn to the judge and say, your honor, the defense rests. And he collapses back into his chair. Perhaps there's a pause where the entire courtroom just sits in stunned silence. And then it explodes into complete pandemonium. Like people are screaming, papers are flying, the judge is banging on the gavel demanding order. And then he finally just gives up perhaps and the judge yells over the, court, over the crowd and he just yells the verdict of the jury, guilty, sentenced to death. Stephen had turned the tables and pronounced a verdict on the people, on the court, on the nation of Israel for rejecting their king and their God. And yet, this court now tries to grab hold of the reins of power once again. After the accusation, after the witness, let's see this final scene of the verdict. You would think that the verdict has already been announced, that they have pronounced Stephen guilty, that they have condemned him to death, but there is an unexpected verdict. The crowd is rushing Stephen out to stone him. They are furious, just like their fathers. They think that the word of God and the salvation of God is actually blasphemy against God. They are unwilling to hear. They are unwilling to believe. They are unwilling to be saved and to be loved by God. They are only willing to protect and demand that their traditions and their power never change. But then Stephen, again, full of the Holy Spirit. We've already seen his face shining like that of an angel. He is, I think what Luke is trying to do is he is a new Moses. He is now coming down the mountain with a shining face. He has a glowing, shining face reflecting the very glory of God. 
Now, in verse 55, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Now, what do we make of Jesus standing? If so many times we are told after his ascension that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the father. Luke doesn't give us too many clues here, but if John's regular language of Christ as our advocate, Christ, our lawyer, the one who speaks on our behalf is at play at all here, then Jesus is both welcoming Stephen into glory, into the presence of the father as our Hebrews 10 high priest, but he is also here interceding on Stephen's behalf. Though the worldly kingdoms of pride would not hear, though they would declare with their own verdict Stephen as guilty, the only real pronouncement that Stephen cares about, the only one that matters, the heavenly kingdom of Christ and the courtroom of God declares Stephen not only not guilty, but declares him, welcomes him, and argues for him that he is beloved, that he is accepted, that he is warmly welcomed into the kingdom. But acknowledging and seeing this reality from Stephen and then saying so, perhaps like Joseph's vision and then being rejected by his brothers or Moses's word to the people and being rejected by his people, this reality makes the crowds even more angry. They will be in charge. They are the ones to decide right and wrong, to decide good and bad. Pride and strength will triumph over humility and weakness, they think. So they will prove it by dragging him out to kill him, just like they did with Jesus, just like they have done. In fact, how Stephen has said, which of the prophets have you not persecuted? Now, before we get to the end here, should Stephen be our model for evangelism? We should note that the apostles and even Stephen in chapter 6 had spent lots of time reasoning with these folks about the person and the work of Jesus. Stephen just doesn't walk into town and into relationships with guns blazing. Paul will later show us the same method of speaking, of reasoning, of gaining trust, of asking questions. But maybe Stephen should actually be an encouragement to us in a couple of ways here. First, that evangelism is done with words. Evangelism is not done with mere kindness. Like we say in the membership class, the often repeated phrase uh, that Francis of Assisi probably actually never even said, but the often repeated phrase, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words, is really like saying, feed the hungry always, and if necessary, use food. Our unbelieving friends and neighbors must hear the truthful reality of sin and of death, of grace and forgiveness, of repentance and belief. Without those very clear words, then otherwise Christianity merely becomes just a way of living, a, a program of doing kind things for, for others, which is important, no doubt about it. But the gospel of Jesus is a kingdom of death to life. The gospel of Jesus is not that of making good people better or making even bad people good, but bringing dead people to life through their conscious and very understood faith 
in what Jesus has done, which we can only do and believe through a very clear understanding of who Jesus is. So our words, a very clear explanation of the gospel is necessary. But then second, while kindness and gentleness ought to motivate and animate all of our words, sometimes, sometimes a line in the sand might need to be drawn. Ray Ortland recently wrote this. He says that Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And we reply, that's too simple. I have 19 issues to think through first. Okay, then let's think through them. But at some point, he will then call us to not fear and only believe. And at that decisive moment, will we come up with 19 more reasons? Stephen rightly recognized that these folks were hardened in their belief. There would always be 19 more reasons and then 19 more and then 19 more reasons or excuses to close their ears to God, to keep rejecting Christ. And at some point in our friendships and our relationships, we simply must just say, do not fear, only believe. These are good things to think through. Let's think through these doubts and these reasons for unbelief. But at some point, we must drop our defiance. We must surrender to Christ and follow him. But these folks, the Sanhedrin and the leaders of Israel, will continue to reject Christ, and they do. They drag Stephen out to stone him. And as they do, as Stephen is so united to Christ and his faith in life, Stephen's last words are many of the same as Jesus' last words. Just as Jesus committed his spirit to the Father, Stephen then commits his spirit to Jesus. Just as Jesus asks God to forgive the sins of his executioners, Stephen does the same. Jesus' people are so closely identified with him in their life and in their behavior and in their faith that to persecute his people is to actually persecute Jesus. In gracious, kind, non-angry humility, Stephen doesn't seek to defend himself, but he does seek to defend the glory of Christ. And what a needed model for us today. What a needed model for us on our social media feeds for our political discourse, for even a needed model for us this week around Thanksgiving tables or on Zoom calls with family that we perhaps very easily disagree with. What a model, gracious, kind, non-angry humility. Courage and conviction, yes, but humility, grace. Stephen dies as the first Christian martyr. And our word for martyr literally means witness. And here's where the tables really turn in this passage. Stephen wasn't actually on trial at all. Stephen wasn't the defendant. Stephen was merely a witness, a martyr, a witness in the courtroom scene where the world thinks that it can keep judging Jesus, can keep accusing him and finding reasons to reject him and condemn him. But Stephen, with his life and his courageous death, will not plead the fifth, will not keep silent, will not cave under pressure, but will die preaching Christ and Christ alone. And this passage ends in a moment of transition. If the book of Acts was a TV series, this would be the cliffhanger season finale of season one. It's moving fast. 
We meet a new character. There's a new movement in the story. And things look really, really bleak, really, really bad for the church. Verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul is standing there, and he approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. There's the cliffhanger. It looks really, really bad. And we're we're just going to leave that hanging until the year 2021. Next season on the book of Acts. It looks really dark, but then in season two, the tide turns and there is so much hope. There is so much victory. There is so much repentance and grace. But in the, in the meantime, in this time between the times, which is perhaps what Advent is all about, the time between the times, we'll get to spend a month now together looking forward in hope. Not just remembering the first coming of Christ, but now looking forward to his second. So Hang in there, guys. Hang in there. This is tough times for all of us, for some more difficult than others. But let's spend this week forcing ourselves into grateful thanksgiving for all that God has done. For the love of Christ in and through and to his people. And then let's meet here again on this here Zoom call next Sunday. And let's sing some Christmas songs together. Hey, oh, I'm excited. Some Christmas songs. Uh, I say this, I think, every year. You are not allowed. It's a very, very strong conviction of mine. Hang in there. Don't start the Christmas music until Thursday. Uh, Thanksgiving is now a turning of the seasons. And then on Sunday, we can all gather in our own homes and on our own couches and loudly sing some of our favorite uh, songs together, looking forward to Jesus' second coming. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful We are so thankful. We pray that even this week, in a time of devoted thanksgiving, we might even become more thankful, even more grateful for the person and the work of Christ, our King, who has come to bring your word, who has come come to bring your salvation. Father, we are so thankful that you have, for those of us who are walking and following him, that you have not left us with dead, hardened hearts, but that you have made us alive through faith in him. God, we pray for those on this call this evening who are perhaps hearing and considering uh, Jesus and who he is. God, we pray that you would bring dead people to life, that you would call them to faith in Christ, that you would um, show him to be the good and trustworthy high king of the universe and of all of our lives that he actually is. Bring repentance, bring faith, Bring good conversations this week amongst us and even considering um, the content of Stephen's sermon. Pray that we, you might fix our eyes on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and that you might bring us joy, that you might bring us contentment, peace, and that you might bring us hope through Christ our King, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.